Thanks for joining us for episode 90 of the Panoramic Outdoors podcast, folks. It's Chase here that you're tuning in with. And on the other line, I'm looking at my buddy Sheldon right now in Brandon. How you doing over there, buddy, Sheldon? Buddy, best friend, whatever you want to call me. I'm doing great. I'm just having a, a good old green bottled moose head. I haven't had one of these for a while. I've been on the Corona, the corona kick for a little while. So I got myself a 12-pack of moose head today and uh i thought i'd enjoy a few beverages while i uh, cooked up a nice steak sandwich mm. listen to this though chase yeah fired up the pit barrel i got a couple steaks from Obermeyer's, and i give them the shameless plug like every week i think because i go there quite a bit and i i would almost consider myself probably a regular but they don't probably consider me a regular because they don't but um i go there quite a bit Anyways, got myself a nice uh, ribeye, and then what I did, I'm like, oh, I'm going to do a steak sandwich tonight, and I bought this, like, nice loaf of bread from Sobeys, which was, like, they they have, like, a fresh, like, a daily fresh bread, and uh, I fired the old pit barrel up, and what I did is I cracked her right open, wide open, you know, got mm-hmm. her fired up, wide open, lid off, I don't know how hot it would be, and I kind of just seared that baby on there, and then I just sealed it up, like, turned the damper right down to nothing, put the lid back on. Uh, I left it. I took the steak off, left it off for a bit, threw the steak back on. Back on. I don't know what it'd be, maybe like 300, 250 degrees, maybe probably. And uh, yeah, I cooked it for another 10, 15 minutes. It came out perfect. Threw it on this fresh bread um, with a little, couple little sauces like mayo and some cheese. And then I put some tomatoes and lettuce on top and just kind of cut it up like a steak sandwich and ate it. Man, it was unbelievable. And of course, I got to do the, the pit barrel th- double thumbs up. It's a it's a system that we've been using uh, for the last year and a half now, pitbarrelcookers.com. You got to go and check it out. Do us a favor. Check, at least go to their website and check it out. Look at what they're doing or go to their Instagram page, uh, pitbarrelcooker, and you'll see all the cool stuff that everyone's making. They're very, very nice to us, and they help us out with every podcast that we're doing in 2021. So you'll be hearing a lot from them in the future. But if you want to get into a pit barrel, check them out, pitbarrelcooker.com. Like I said, it's free shipping in the U.S. And in Canada, you can look at the map and find out where they sell them all across the whole country. And for us, we've been using them, like I said, forever. We love them. And if you have any questions about getting into one, please DM us. We'll help you out. We'll uh, give you any advice or anything that we like or we don't like about them. We'll We'll let you know. But... It was my meal tonight, man. Meal of choice. So I paired it with a nice green bottled moose head, like I said. Ooh, but that sounds. That was, that was my night before the podcast uh, recording. That sounds scrumptious. I haven't used that word in a while. Sounds yeah. fantastic, though. Um, have you used the word? Have you used the word master angler in the in a while? <clears throat> I haven't. Noah, um, you actually find out on this podcast that I, last time I went fishing, I didn't even catch a thing. So. Um, <laughs> definitely not uh any master angler lingo being tossed around at this time but well i was gonna say i was gonna say though chase i'm sorry to cut you off but yeah. like you have been doing a lot of fly fishing um on the river there near near your uh residence and how's that going like what what's the what's a couple of things that you've learned there before even talking to Stu? oh man um yeah it was a it was a quick uh a, i guess not a, not a whole lot to learn just a few key features to learn there fishing the river and, and it's it's uh you don't want to be right on top of the water you want to be in the water column somewhere 
and uh, kind of figuring out how to cast and how to work the work the fly in the water. Just you know, lots of times you're trying to actually work that fly, and um, a lot of the guys are saying if you want to be successful there, cast it out, get it out to like if you can get get a break in the current, kind of where two currents meet, kind of thing. That's a good spot to to throw it upstream and just let that fly sink and, and do its thing. And it's uh, I've been having a lot of success with that I've also cut a lot of rocks with that <laughs> so um leatherman's been uh pretty handy for me out there obviously if you guys follow us on instagram you can you can find that little bit on uh on how that leatherman's been helping me out but uh yeah been successful man once you learn a few tips and tricks it's it's amazing that the, the fish that you can catch out there and, and i've been having a lot of fun doing it Lots of uh, lots of big cats, drum, carp, uh, some sauger, some walleye. So just uh, a huge um, variety of fish to go after out there. It's pretty cool. Okay, so I got a question for you. I seen it on TikTok, and if anybody that's listening doesn't know, we have a TikTok account. It's really new, really fresh. We're still trying to figure it out. But I was watching some TikTok videos, and there's this guy that calls it. He calls it the poor man lobster for a walleye fillet, which well, in my books, poor man lobster in our neck of the woods would probably be like a burbot, would it not, Chase? Would you agree with that? That that is what they call the poor man's lobster in Manitoba. But um, do you have something else to say on this story? Yeah, I'm not, I wasn't even finished. I just wanted you to like reassure me, and make sure I'm not sounding yeah. like an idiot. Okay, carry oh, okay. on, carry on, and then okay. I'll, and then I'll add my bit at the end. Okay, well this so this guy on this video says he's making poor man lobster. So what he does, and I'm now I'm like interested. I kind of want to try it. But what he does is he actually boils water, puts a cup of sugar in the water. I don't know how much water there was, but he put a cup of sugar in the water, stirred it up, waited till it boiled, threw his walleye fillets in there, which I think is like the worst thing you could probably do. But anyways, boils his walleye fillets, throws them onto a piece of tin foil, and then like pours melted butter all over them with a little bit of garlic, I think, and whatever and he said it's the best way you can eat walleye and now i'm very intrigued because normally what i do is i get the catch and cook um coatings and i i do catch and cook all the time or or something very similar right not all the time but like we you know we do our our own little recipes here and there but that was a new one for me this week yeah i was in the catch and cook tonight that's for sure um man i almost feel like i don't know that might even be a sin to boil walleye like that i don't know well, like That's boiling tough. meat, boiling meat in any way, I think is kind of almost like a sin. Funny, another funny story. I got a guy named Parker. You know Parker, but anyone that's not listening to, or anyone that's listening that doesn't know him, he's a trapper from the far north. And his he said his favorite meal on the trap line is boiled sausage and progies, and he boils it all in one one <laughs> pot. And he, uh, I don't know if he j- even drinks the water. Knowing him, he might, but. Uh, but yeah, he said that's one of his favorite meals, boiled sausage and pierogies. That's wild. It's one of those those meals that maybe bring you back to a place. But um, yeah, th- I've heard uh, I've heard of people doing um, uh, like burbot that way, or not? Yeah, burbot. Yeah, and uh, they say boil it and seven up even. Some people. Right? Oh really? Yeah, yeah. So um, I don't know. What I, would I, that I, do? It just sweetens it up. It's like putting that. A cup uh, of sugar in there or whatever right um but I, i've had it bourbon fried and and all that and it's pretty good enjoyed it yeah but i was actually talking to the mcfads the other day 
Um, and because uh, he's Who's she, he's uh, yeah, <laughs> he's been uh, cooking up some more drum as he typically does in the summertime, and uh, we're <laughs> having the conversation around drum and. And uh, I cooked one up a few weeks ago on the barbecue, and it's uh, drums like a very thick and heavy meat too. It almost reminded me of like a swordfish or a lobster as well. It's got that thick, really like, um, like uh, bouncy or like almost rubbery. Like you know, a lobster is has that that yeah. that hold in its its texture and its its uh, density. It's almost like that. So. Um, we're we're kind of scheming a couple ways to try and cook it a little bit differently to make it more more appealing to the to the seafood lovers. Um, so the next drum I catch, I'm gonna have to do a little bit of experimenting with and see what happens. That's the crazy thing about drum, and I we've talked about this before too. Is I think there's a lot of people that catch them, throw them right back, and they don't really maybe they just don't know how to cook them like for me for instance i'm the kind of guy that catches them throws them back the first time i think i had drum was either with you or with josh and it was i thought it was awesome like and josh has one thing that he always kind of tells me he's like oh yeah you know the walleye is kind of the vanilla of the fish and you know when, once you start kind of experimenting and trying some of these different fish that we have that like right in our backyards you kind of start agreeing with some of these guys that have been you know cooking these things for for years and like yourself like you you tend to keep some smaller drum and cook them up right Mm -hmm. yeah yeah i've definitely i haven't really kept a whole bunch of them throughout my life we used to keep them when we were kids and dad would smoke them and and keep the little uh drums out of the heads there but um as far as table fare goes like growing up we never really fried them up or anything like that so it's I'm always interested in the ways that we can be more resourceful with a wider variety of things that we have available to us in the yeah. water or on the land kind of thing. So it's, if I can pull a drum out of the water and make it taste good for somebody else to enjoy it, I think that's a pretty valuable thing to do in life. I don't know. Well, well, not only that, but like I have a lot of, uh, I don't know. Yeah. I think I'd, I'd say respect for, for like, just, just say you and Tristan, um, as fathers, like you guys are kind of putting it in your, your children's heads, like, you know, drum or is good eating. This is good eating. Like, it's just not ne- necessarily walleye. And I almost think like when we were growing up, it was like where we're from anyways, it's just like walleye, walleye, walleye. That's all you want to eat. Mm-hmm. Um, I was on a fishing trip with a guy and his name was Aaron and you know, he kept a few jackfish just because like we tr- traveled a long ways to this spot to go fishing and you know taking his limit of walleye wasn't good enough like he wanted to get these jackfish and i was like man i was like high-fiving i'm like good for you because yeah you know you drive all this way you got some cold water jackfish they're not in some slough it's in a river system they're super good and like he's like oh yeah the difference because they, they can't even taste the difference so he's like why not take a few jackfish when you can and and uh yeah like use them right so absolutely yeah especially like i I don't know how much aaron gets out fishing but like lots of guys i know that that might be only one or two fishing trips a year that they get to go out on and and enjoy some some fresh fish and or put some fresh fish in the freezer right so if you know how to clean a pike properly and uh plate that up for your family no one will know the difference no exactly and like i said like i think it's just a super cool thing when you can teach kids that there's um there's there's more fish in that uh in the ocean let's just say other than just walleye 
especially where, where we're from right so yeah there's a lot of there's a lot of good fish you can eat and um but yeah anyways so uh it's been pretty dry out eh <laughs> <laughs> oh man the 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 drought and the heat it's it's pretty wild and i i've been seeing a lot down in the states they're they're talking about like closing trout streams down and stuff like that uh to uh, for the fish's health right because trout are one of those cold water fish they do well in cold water they don't re- do really well in heat they don't recover well from from uh being released um but we're lucky here we get a lot a lot more warmer water species that are adapted to uh, those those temps like walleye and and stuff like that but even then you know I'm, I'm sure there's people out there thinking about should we be out there fishing right now should we be fishing this bath water and catching fish and throwing them back i know most of the fish are done spawning now but uh i don't know have you ever given any thought into you know those warmer temps i know you do quite a bit of your fishing up north so the water's a lot more colder up there um i know anytime you go up there it's you know you're pretty much right on the permafrost line almost for some of the places you head out fishing yeah there's nowhere up north where i fish or, or where when i go up north on these fishing trips there's nowhere that i'm very concerned about um the water temperatures even though like some of the good people are not good people but some of the people that are fishing every day of the week up in the north that uh especially the paint lake thompson area they um you know they have some strategy behind water temperatures but like down here i i honest to god like i haven't really fished when the water gets to that temperature for some reason um i'm kind of like a spring fisherman spring to like the end of june and maybe the odd time i'll go with you and tristan you know catfishing or whatever in the river but Mm -hmm. Like I, I'm not an avid fisherman where I'll go out every single weekend or a couple days during the week, even though I've been trying to like change that. But, um, yeah, I, I don't know. It's, it's, it's something I just don't do. And I don't, I don't have much to comment on it other than it is something that you definitely need to think about, especially if you're fishing. I know there's spots in Manitoba where they have like trout ponds or smaller lakes that are, that have trout in them. Um, and, and not only that, but other species where, yeah, you probably have to do, a little maybe a little bit of research and just you know maybe take a weekend off when it is 35 to what was it last weekend like 37 degrees i had to move a cousin actually and i um you know at the end of the day i felt like shit i couldn't imagine a, a fish that wasn't uh, used to the hot weather you know coming yeah. from a, a hot water or a warm water into the hot sunlight for a pitcher or two they probably don't feel good either but I mean, I had to move because I didn't feel good, but I also had, you know, 10 or 15 beers that day too. So <laughs> <laughs> the next day I wasn't feeling good regardless. Yeah. It's funny. Cause I, I've like through my fishing experience too, I, I haven't never really given a lot of thought about the water temperatures and, and the health of the fish, but I'm, I'm like seriously giving it some, a few looks now just to, I don't know. I don't want to be the, the only one out there tossing a line and pretty much just throwing dead fish back. It's not, uh, it's not good yeah. for the fishery and it's, I don't know why, why do it? Right. So if you're going out to catch a few to keep, why not? I guess. But, uh, if you know, you can grab some, but well, just be, that's the other thing. Sorry to cut you off, but that's the other thing too. I think you have to really think about it. And sometimes things that I don't even think about when I'm going out fishing, even in the springtime is like, once you do catch fish, especially when you're shore fishing, uh, and you don't have a stringer and you know, you got to keep it 
fresh. You know, you can't just throw it on the bank because then within an hour it could be starting to spoil or starting to smell. Like you got to have a cooler, some sort of cooling system or a stringer to throw it back in the water to keep it cool. Yeah. Um, yeah, there's a lot of things to think about when it gets super hot. That's for sure. Big time, big time. And, uh, man, things are, things are kind of tightening up around Manitoba now too with, uh, with not only the Thames, but the, the lack of rain backcountry travel restrictions are coming on. Um, that's going to restrict a lot of people to access to those backcountry lakes to go fishing and stuff. So it's, it's kind of a weird summer right now with, uh, I mean, we've had some major heat early on here and just no rain water levels are low and, uh, kind of sucks because we're just kind of climbing out of our, our COVID lockdown and people want to get out. And now here we are restricted again, this time by, by weather. And uh, not only is it bad for fishermen, but farmers and all that. The whole food supply chain in Manitoba is going to be feeling the squeeze, I'm sure. Well, yeah, and that's that's the thing. It's a, I wouldn't say it's interesting, but it's kind of like almost heartbreaking because I know a lot of communities, especially where I grew up, um, smaller community in Manitoba, like we rely on the agriculture, farming. We, you know, a lot of small businesses do. My dad had a small business growing up. And I remember him saying like years ago, like if farmers don't do well, we don't do well. Like they, they don't spend money, right? Like they don't have the money to spend. And it's almost like a, a little bit of like a pyramid, not a, you know what I mean? Like it's just, mm-hmm. it's kind of crazy. So, so not only do we have, you know, the economy kind of in the shits right now because of COVID while, well, you know, you add on to the farmers that might not have a great year because of this drought or not getting rain, uh, it might turn into a really big, uh, shit show but i i did see in the in the news they have a couple like uh state of emergencies like agricultural emergencies or something they call it mm-hmm. so i haven't read into it but it's kind of interesting as i hate saying it's interesting because it's not but at the same time it is you know yeah. what i mean yeah pretty pretty wild one uh one interesting thing that that i'd like to put together here that is kind of a benefit from this drought and Stu talks about this in the podcast and he's talking about uh you know writing paper maps and and all this stuff and it's which is a great idea and uh he obviously put in a heck of a lot of time back in the day to to really figure out the waterways and and the uh the best fishing spots even when the water's low or the water's high and if you listen to the podcast you'll figure out why this is important to figure out where the low spots are where the holes are or even the rocks that you can walk out onto so right now you can map out these areas when it's low water to find either the low spots to cast into or the rocks that you you can walk out onto and i think you know as we we're zooming through the digital age here we got one of the best resources at our fingertip that we can use for fishing and hunting and that's the iHunter app that I'm sure you guys hear, heard us talk about before on this podcast. Um, so whether that's going out to your fishing spot, and like I, I said, I'm just kind of entering the fly fishing world here and walking out to either the ridges that you can walk out onto and marking those on the iHunter, dropping waypoints, mapping a route. You can, you can like map a map whatever it's just like a gps right you can map a route right on your phone or or marking the uh the holes for you to cast when that water rises back up in the spring so 
if you're uh, if you're interested in dabbling in the iHunter world, if you haven't already, check them out. They have an app. You can transfer all your waypoints from your old GPS onto this new app and have it right at your fingertips on your phone. And uh, they also have a web, web-based platform, web.ihunterapp.com. And if you want to get into their public land subscription, you're going to get 30% off if you throw in the promo code PANORAMIC30 there. And if you want to check out their new landowner map system, they have a whole bunch of landowner maps covering Manitoba over 70 maps to check out there. So super cool and uh, a great way to learn and remember your waterways. Hey, so if a guy, a woman, a child, whoever was wanting to get onto high hunter on the, go to the app store, how much or whatever, however they do it, how much does it cost them to do it? Do you know approximately? I think that I think their base model is free. The base app, yeah, yeah. I believe, is free. Um, right. But, like, let's just say, like, you wanted to, like, get some stuff for scouting this fall. Like, how much money would you need to, like, kind of save up to, like, know your area with landowner maps and everything else? Uh, well, the landowner maps vary between uh, between area, right? So, oh, okay. um, the price points, I believe, are based on the same prices that you would uh, purchase them at the uh, map store with, oh, yeah. for the paper version. So... That's good. Yeah, but it's on your phone, and you can layer them on your phone and with your with your uh, satellite imagery. And you can actually make the map transparent, so you can see whether there's a river, a swamp, or whatever running through there. And uh, it's all GPS coordinated, right? So as long as you have that thing fired up before you lose cell service, you're good to go. Nice. Yeah. Nice. And what? Um... What was your plan for this weekend? Are you guys going camping or what? We're headed out to Nudimic, man. We're uh, we went out there a couple weekends ago. We had a pretty good time, and uh, we're out there with uh, a few other folks. But it's just uh, me, Jody, and the kids heading out this weekend. We're gonna try and stay cool and just I don't know, just enjoy ourselves. It's supposed really. to be hot, eh? Yeah, it's Sunday's like thirty something. Sunday's gonna be thirty-five again. I think they said so. Jeez, eh? Yeah, another cooker. That's crazy. When we were uh, up fishing there, <laughs> man, I could, I could, we could do a podcast about this fishing trip I went on. But when we were up there, we didn't hit that heat wave, but we had the one day and it was probably, let's say, 25 degrees. And um, I remember we got back from fishing and we were making supper and we were having a couple cocktails. And we had this one buddy in camp and I won't mention his name, but we, we're like, oh, we had a great day. You know, it was nice and hot on the boat. You know, uh, we had a great day. Let's uh, let's uh, have a have a drink, right? So we had a shot. Well, so another buddy brings out this bottle of tequila. Oh boy! And, <laughs> oh boy! So we had a shot. Tequila. Well, you know, like we all poured it or whatever. And we go to cheers, and the one guy puts it in his mouth and he starts gargling it. <laughs> and like right when he was done gargling it. He would start gargling again. And like this went on for like, honest to God, Chase, 60 seconds before he swallowed it. And like we already swallowed it and we're making the faces and we're looking at him and laughing. And man, we just had a freaking wicked time. But I don't know. Random story, but you got to hear those once in a while. (laughs) (laughs) Sounds like it just reminded me because it was super hot, man. It was super hot. We're camping and we're fishing and we had to do a shot of tequila. So what I'm saying is that if you have to, uh, give your kids a shot of tequila. 
have some fun. Sounds like a torture story to me. <laughs> <laughs> Sounds like a what? Torture story to me. Yeah, no kidding. Actually, I don't mind tequila. It's actually uh, one of my favorite shots, I think. As long as it's good. It's like bar tequila sucks, but if you pay for a shot of tequila, man, that shit's good. Don't get the cheap stuff. Don't get the cheap stuff. So I had one more question for you for the intro. Um, since we had that spy point dude on, what was his name? Is Trent March? Yeah. I've been uh, thinking about podcast or not podcast. Thinking about camera placements as in trail cams. I know my dad's put up a couple already this summer and um, has had some actually really good pictures of some different animals. But do you have anything set up? Man, I don't. I had intentions of going out this week to set some up, but uh, I haven't been able to slide out yet. Um, with the restrictions opening back up, we've actually had uh, baseball opening up, so that means I'm playing a little slow pitch, and Decker is actually uh, playing ball two nights a week, and I'm coaching his team. So You're a coach? Yeah, yeah. Oh, God. Yeah. <laughs> Do you yell and swear at them and then just like lean on the fence and... I'm Talk not too to sure wife, who's right? more confused out there, me or the kids. So it's uh, <laughs> it's a win-win, I think. <laughs> oh, that's awesome. I was uh, just going to mention that I gave a bunch of uh, stuff to my dad to try out. And when he was putting out the trail cams, like where we hunt, we hunt like agriculture. And then in the back kind of part of the agriculture, there's like a swampy land, swampy bushland. And there's a lot of like, like let's just say like laying water. So anyways, I gave my dad a bunch of stuff from Wolove to try out, and he was trying out the socks. The one thing that he did tell me about them is that he was walking through the bush and um, yeah, got his feet just soaked. And he said within like five minutes of walking, like on dry land again, he said like he didn't even notice his feet were wet. And I, and I told him, I said, you know, I do a lot of oh, – I didn't tell him this, but for anyone that's listening, I do a lot of work outside. I'm, you know, I'm outside uh, – with my profession a lot and my feet get wet, they get cold, etc. And when I started wearing these socks, because they are merino wool, they keep your feet super warm and they also keep your feet super cold. And then when they get wet, it's not like you're walking in soggy socks where you're getting like, you're, you can feel your feet wrinkling up. It's almost like you're in a dry pair of socks, like instantly after like say 10 minutes of walking. Um, but merino wool, wool love, wool love makes merino wool products and that's stuff that we've been using for the last little while. It's made 100% of merino wool, and it's super uh, durable and breathable and will never hold odor, which is very key for me, especially when you go on some of these storms and you're wearing the same socks for three or four days. Chase, I know me and you go to camp, and we might wear the same socks and long johns for three or four days, five days, eight days. They're just getting broken when, in, man. <laughs> just getting broken <laughs> in. But, yeah, you got to check that out. You got to go to check out wool.love. And when you go there, you can actually use our promo code PANORAMIC10 for 10% off your purchase. And you can actually bundle that up and get 25% off on some of the stuff they've got. And they got a lot of new stuff. Like um, they got a bunch of women's items like uh, tank tops, underwear. Uh, and for men, they got, you know, T-shirts, uh, everything else that they've, they've had for the last few years. So check that out, wool.love. And uh, use our promo code PANORAMIC10. Yeah, I've been wearing their T-shirt, man. And it is comfy and like you said that that you don't get that i don't know that i've been sprayed by the garden hose multiple times with it by my kids and you get the initial shock of the water 
because the uh, water's yeah. cold, but it's not like you feel wet after, you know, yeah. it's super weird. And I've been wearing it to baseball practice and it's just so much more different than wearing a cotton shirt. It's, it's, uh, you really got to get some like wool on to, to try it out. It's, it's game changing. Well, then that's the thing too. And I'm going to say this, uh, in my own personal opinion is that there's a lot, there's not a lot, but there's some merino wool that you can get out there. But you're gonna spend like 180, 150 dollars for some of the like a long sleeve shirt, for instance. With this wool love stuff, you can get into it for 100 bucks for a long sleeve shirt or under. Merino wool is expensive. I'm gonna tell you that right off the bat. But you'll like you'll totally, totally benefit from it, and you'll love it, and you probably will never buy anything else. I like I said, I've been working outside for the last uh, 15 years in my profession, plus outdoor stuff like on the side hunting fishing doing whatever and merino wool is always in either my suitcase or my backpack so mm-hmm. I, I i 100% suggest doing it wool love is the way to do it right on that's amazing um last question i got for you before we uh, get fired into this podcast here um i seen uh old nate space there had some pickled shiners on the menu the other night yeah I see that. <laughs> what is you, that legit? I, oh, for sure. Like a joke? For sure, he probably pickles them. You can totally do that. What do you think? Should we? Should we get a batch ever, fired up? Have you ever ate shiners? Uh, no, I don't think I have. Like without a bet? I don't know. Definitely not without a bet. If I have, it would have been with a bet. Okay, it's okay. I got a scenario for you. It's plus thirty three out. You're sitting in a boat with a bunch of dudes, and I offered you twenty dollars to eat a handful of shiners. Out of Nate Bait, Nate's Bates tubs, would you eat them? No, definitely not. Hundred dollars, maybe hundred bucks. <laughs> <laughs> Shit's tight, man. Shit's yeah. tight. No pickled shiners. That must. I don't know. It must. Be, it must be like a sardine, obviously, right? Yeah, probably similar. Sardines are canned, right? Pickled shiners would be very similar. Seeing that he was, uh, I mean, pickling's usually done with vinegar and some some sort of heat, so it just melts those bones away in the shiner and there you go you got a little nice little hunk of meat to dress your plate up with yeah i don't know uh, yeah i don't know that's one of those things that i guess i'll have to try it before i knock it yeah exactly we'll put it up there with the drum and and everything else that we're we're sliding into these days anyways uh we won't keep you guys waiting much longer here we go fly fishing with Stu thompson And joining us now on the podcast, we have Stu Thompson. Stu, thanks for coming and uh, having a chat with us today, man. Well, no problem whatsoever. It's going to be a blast, I think. I think so, too. I'm, I'm definitely looking forward to this conversation. Um, before we get going here, why don't you tell everyone where you're tuning in from? Well, I live in Winnipeg, so it's uh, not too bad of a little city. It's great for the outdoors whether you're bird hunting or fishing or it doesn't matter you can just go outdoors and just have a great time nice nice so um if anyone doesn't know Stu too well a few of his uh i guess attributes or uh, or uh, a few things that he's known for is uh you know outdoors author he's avid outdoorsman fly casting instructor guide and uh avid angler and to add to that list here, Stu, we're going to break down five burning questions, That we, is what we call them. 
and uh, we're going to toss them to you. You answer them how you like, and this is just a quick little get to know you session for everybody. Sure. First question we usually ask is, uh, you know, yeah, yeah, what's your favorite meal and what's would you pair that meal up with to drink? Okay. My absolute favorite, burgers and beans, believe it or not, with a malt beer. Ooh, malty. That's a, that's a great yeah. answer. It's actually at our uh, moose camp. We do a lot of walleye fishing up north. And one of uh, my cousin and I, our favorite meal is usually fried walleye and beans with like just a piece of buttered bread. It just yeah. uh, almost like a comfort food, I guess. Yeah. See, that the thing with me is like I will not eat that in the middle of the day or while I'm out fishing. Right. It's always a supper at the end of the day, having a beer and drying myself. And usually it's with my son that I do this with. Nice. nice. That's a, that's a classic. I remember, uh, even now, uh, hunting with Sheldon for a couple of years, he's got a bit of a signature breakfast dish that he always puts together is this big s- scramble where it's just pretty much whatever breakfast food he got in the cooler, you throw it in there. And, uh, it it's become this like staple for me for for uh hunting or camp camp life pretty much and it's it doesn't show itself anywhere else like that's not something that i'll cook up at home but when we're camping or we're hunting or on a fishing trip that's uh that's an essential meal for us so oh yeah uh, for sure i i feel that's a lot like that um not too sure how big of a music fan you are but uh mm-hmm. if you had one concert to go see with any band dead or alive who would you go see without hesitation moody blues moody blues that's a first i don't even know who yeah. who that is you might have oh, to elaborate a little bit knights in white satin <laughs> <laughs> that, yeah that's really dating myself moody but yeah you gotta listen uh days of future past moody blues days of future pla- pa- past yeah Okay, I'm writing that down right now. We're going to check that out after the podcast here for sure. Um, obviously, you're a big fisherman, Stu. And uh, what is your favorite fish to pursue in Manitoba? Probably, uh, well, anything with fins, but the absolute favorite is topwater pike. Mm, nice. I love topwater pike. It's a riot. And is that typically something you're, you're going after in the spring? Or is that... Uh... Can you get after them all year long with the topwater action? Well, with with the poppers and that that I use, uh, usually springtime, early spring, where as soon as the season opens, I'll concentrate on the bigger fish. And I'm hoping to get fish from 35 up to 45 inches. Mm-hmm. Uh, this time of year, I'll fish a weed beds and tons and tons of small pike. Of course, you call them snot rockets or or hammer handles, whatever you want to call them, mm-hmm. but anything like from 20 up to 30 inches, it's just, they explode out of the water. In fact, a couple weekends ago, I was out and I had about 60, 70 pike in the morning and half of them come clear out of the water. They jumped two, three feet in the air with a popper in their mouth Jeez. and I had to set the hook in midair. So yeah, <laughs> exciting. Yeah. It's awesome. No kidding. That sounds like an awesome time. Um, we've done a little popper fishing, uh, with, uh, just with spinning rods before on some backcountry trips. And it's a lot of fun with those little fish too. Um, what's one fish that's on your bucket list that you want to pursue worldwide? You can go with this one. I can go anywhere and get it. Yep. Probably a bonefish. Oh yeah. And I've been lucky enough to fish in Hawaii a couple times 
and I've had a couple bonefish on, but I've never landed them. No kidding. And the guide that I had said these bone bonefish would go over 12 pounds. Whew. So they're massive. And the fish that I saw there, it was like I'm salivating because these fish are just so pork and big. It's unbelievable. Yeah. And, you know, like, yeah, I had two on and I lost about 200 yards of fly, flying and backing in a blink of an eye. Like, it was amazing. Jeez. Oh, yeah. Yeah, just keep your knuckles clear on those guys. You got it. <laughs> um, those bonefish, I, if I remember, I was talking to my buddy, I think, about bonefish. And they're they're a little bit trickier. They're, they're a different style of, uh, of uh, fly fishing almost where they're hypersensitive and uh when you set the hook you have to do like a, a strip set with your tip down is that correct yeah that's right uh they are really spooky and it's just like you walking along and all of a sudden you're seeing ghosts all over the place and you're stopping and you're looking and you're stopping and you're looking and that's what you're doing when you're fly fishing bonefish is when you're waiting the flats you're stopping and you're looking and the guide says well there's a fish about 80 feet away and you go where <laughs> because you're not used to seeing this right yeah and he says okay cast 40 feet to that spot so that's where you have to be accurate with your casting because he could tell you to cast 30 feet you, he'll say 20 feet to your left right he'll say 90 feet out in front of you and that's a full fly line so you have to be able to do that and you have to be able to do it accurately so there's the challenge yeah in getting those fish on the fly that's a far cast too what um what kind of tackle are you going after them with well at the time the guy gave me a seven weight but totally undergunned like i felt a nine or ten weight would be a lot better for those fish yeah a lot of the guys that go after them all the time they're doing smaller bonefish like anywhere from two to five pounds somewhere in there and you can use the seven weight for that no problem mm-hmm but the fish I was going for, like, I could not believe the size of them. They were massive with a seven weight with, like, 250 yards of backing. Like, the second fish pretty well spooled me. Yeah. Yeah. No wonder the, the he's taking line like that. That's wild. Um, and the last and fifth fifth and final question I have for you, uh, dry flies or wet flies? Streamers. Streamers? Streamers. Without a doubt. I was – when I was younger – I got this book called Streamers, The Big Fish Flies by Joseph D. Bates. That's one book every fly fisherman should read because the amount of big fish that he catches on streamers would just shock you. And I love designing and tying streamers, and I love fishing them. Hmm. I catch, I bet you I catch about 80% of my fish on streamers. No kidding. So it's it's almost like a, a little bit, oh, man. When when I first got into the fly fishing world, I mean, just based on everything that I seen on TV and the little bit that I did see on uh, and some shows and stuff like that, you know, I don't I never used to watch a whole lot on like the outdoor channel, but but lots of the popular stuff that that you see in like Hollywood films, they're fishing dry flies a lot of time, right? That's the that's the big the the how everybody knows fly fishing and and like when i talk to people about fly fishing lockport and catching cats on them too they're like well i didn't know you know catfish came to the surface to feed and and that that's a whole nother story but i feel like dry fly fishing especially up here in manitoba is 
a tiny percentage of of the the fly fishing that that people do what 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 do you think that ratio would look like if you were to to break it down between like uh dry flies and then and then package up like streamers and and sinking uh tackle okay so one thing you have to remember is and this is really critical when guys go out fly fishing 95 percent of the fish's diet is underneath the surface of the water five percent is on the surface so what you have to do and i can give you approximate dates when the hatches occur but when you figure out when the hatches occur, you can go down to the Winnipeg River, for example, and tie up a big, and these dry flies I used, there was a size four dry fly, extended body, and it imitated the natural hexagenia flies like you wouldn't believe. And I timed everything right when I went down there. Because the previous year, when I was 19, I got my first car. I put 19,000 miles on it. And all I did, I didn't fish that summer. All I did was I cataloged all the hatches on the Winnipeg River where I fished. I went out virtually every night, timed everything, the species of mayflies. When I was younger, I could tell you all 76 different species of mayflies in the province by the scientific name. But since I'm older, it doesn't matter because you can just say a light or dark mayfly and have the appropriate size of hook and you, you can match it. Anyway, I, I recorded all the hatches. I, Went out the next year and put 21,000 miles on my vehicle, and I was averaging 150 fish a night. And I'm not, I'm not being BSing you. That is the honest to God's truth. Because once you do the homework, the results, it's like getting an A in math. When you do your homework, you will get an A in math. When you do your homework in fly fishing, you'll get an A in catching fish. And all of a sudden, you stop to realize, like, it's not just the mayflies. What else do the fish eat, mm -hmm. right? And that's what you have to think of. What do fish eat? All fish live in water. We're all humans. I relate everything back to human behavior. We all like food. Sheldon likes burgers. You like chicken. I like pork chops. Sheldon, would you eat a pork chop? Oh, yeah. Off, off yeah. and on. Yeah, for sure. Why? Because you're hungry. It's food. Right. That's the same with all the fish that live in the water. When you look at what the fish eat, and I do this because, you know, like when I work at Cabela's, I work part-time at Cabela's. But when I talk to people there, I ask them, what the fish eat? Minnows, leeches, and crawlers. Well, sorry, crawlers is not <laughs> a natural food item. You got mayflies, you have stoneflies, you have caddisflies, and like 76 species of mayflies. I believe there's 26 species of stoneflies in the province, 50 some species of caddisflies in the province, dragonfly nymphs, damselfly nymphs, water boatmen, back swimmers, freshwater shrimp. I've seen pike chase freshwater shrimp along the shoreline. And it's really amazing because these pike are like 30 inches and they're scooting along the shoreline trying to find freshwater shrimp and they're eating them. People don't know that. Once people understand what the fish eat, then they go, ah look at the colors of these insects if i have something a jig in that color i could probably jig to represent whatever that is and then fish a jig in that color or if he's really smart gets a bottom bouncer finds out what's hatching let's say mayflies for example first couple of weeks of june so what a bottom bouncer five to eight feet of water over a sand or mud bottom flat you buy a couple mayfly nips from the store 
three feet of fluorocarbon off the end of your bottom bouncer and put the fly on there, are you going to be catching walleye? Oh, man, I'll tell you, you will be catching walleye. I told that to a guy that was fishing a tournament. I said, do you want to win? He goes, well, of course I do. So I just happened to have two beige Montanas in my pocket. And I gave them both to him. And I told him to do that. He came back in the store to see me. He goes, still, 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 still. he was so pumped. It was amazing. He said, I tried your technique for the last 45 minutes of the tournament. I got a five and a half, a six and a quarter, and a seven and a half pound walleye. And it bumped me from 27th place up to third place. I won $2,300. I said, <laughs> I said, no, you didn't. I said, you lost 7,700 because you didn't do it for the whole tournament. <laughs> and he just stopped cold and he goes, you know something? You're right. So it was really cool because all the pros asked him what he did to catch those fish at the end of the tournament. He told them, I tied 200 dozen mayfly nymphs for these guys. That was just Jeez. wild. Unbelievable. And they still use them today. Yeah. I, I guess that, that, that really goes to show you just how much, um, you know, I can say, well, I, I've never really thought, thought about uh, stuff in that, that depth yet. Whereas like, you know, when we go out, it's pretty much grab a pack of minnows and maybe some worms and we'll see what happens kind of thing. But if, you know, you have the time and the, and the know-how to break that stuff down, your success rates can really just... Oh, they'll skyrocket. Yeah. That's In unbelievable. One, one thing my brother's been doing quite a bit too, and they, he, I don't think he's, he didn't go up north this year, but uh, they usually make the trip up to uh, Clearwater and Barbie and they... Uh, one of the, one of their their um, tactics up there is to tow a fly too, and that's normally when they get most success up there is when they're towing a fly. Oh yeah, big time, big time. You can do that on conventional equipment. It's amazing. If you don't fly fish, you can still fish flies. Mm -hmm. You don't have to fly cast to fish a fly. They have clear plastic floats called torpedo floats. The line goes through the middle of the float. You pull the top off. You add water for casting weight. You, you let up, you pull two feet of line past the float. Then you take the top of the float because there's surgical tubing that the line goes through and you twist it and you twist it really tight until it wraps up on itself. So now your float is attached to your line and two feet behind that is your fly. So you can actually fly fish, whether it's a dry fly, a nymph, a wet fly, a streamer. It doesn't matter. You can actively fly fish with conventional equipment, and it works. Match the hatch, and away you, you go. It. I got a butt in here because I'm probably the greenest fly fisher person in the sitting at this conversation for sure. A couple <laughs> questions I need to ask you, Stu, um, just because I just kind of want to get the definitions and lingo down, so anybody that is listening can kind of follow along as well. But first thing I want to ask you about is weights. You kind of mentioned it earlier in the five burning questions, but when it comes to weights, what, what does that mean? Okay. The weight of the fly line, what they do is they take the first 30 feet of fly line and they weigh it. It weighs X number of grains. So an eight weight fly line, and then I talk in ounces because everybody knows how much half an ounce is. That's what the fly line weighs is half an ounce, the first 30 feet. I believe it's 260 some grains. If you, if you want to get scientific, like okay. forget the scientific stuff. Anyway, they have outfits going from a zero weight 
up to a 15. The smaller the number, the lighter the outfit. So if you have a three weight and you go down to Lockport, I'm going to call you a real crazy man because you ain't going to land nothing on that and you'll ruin your equipment. But if you have a nine or 10 weight, you can handle the cats up there no problem because it's a heavier rod with heavier line and you can handle bigger fish on that. Okay. I've uh, I've been I've been dabbling with a, a uh, say, what is it seven weight rod and a five six reel and uh, yeah I, I burnt out the drag on my reel with the cats. <laughs> I, I don't I don't mind the fight with them, but uh, the just the the reel is just too small to handle it, obviously, which is uh, which is okay. So learning lesson. But um, I, I feel like for the the drum and stuff like that out there, it's 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 like night and day fighting a drum to uh, you know a thirty five inch cat in that current. Oh yeah, it's huge. See, uh, a seven weight that like you would have would be okay for drum. Mm-hmm. It'd be really questionable for some of the big cats and carp. If you're doing gold eye, a four or five weight would be really nice. But once again, you got big cats and big carp. Right? Are you willing to go out and ruin your equipment so you can catch a gold on, on a three or four weight and all of a sudden that little nymph you're using is swallowed by a catfish at 38 inches and you try and land that thing on like good luck, Charlie. You know what I mean? <laughs> yeah, for sure. I got one more question for you, Stu, before I let Chase carry on. <clears throat> you guys talked about dry flies, wet flies and streamers and there's a couple other <sighs> words you use there. Can you kind of just explain that quickly on what the difference is and and uh, yeah, what that's all about? Okay, so a dry fly floats, and there's okay. a couple different categories of dry flies. You have traditional dry flies, which will imitate mayflies or caddisflies or stoneflies, and then you have poppers, which are made out of cork, balsa wood, or flip-flop sandals, believe it or not. <laughs> so those are the two different styles of dries that you can have. When you're fishing a, with an insect imitation, so an actual mayfly dry fly, you do have to apply some dry fly floating to make it float a little bit more. Even though the materials in the flies are designed for sitting on the surface film, right? you still need something because it's a natural material. It'll get waterlogged after about five or six casts, and then you have to do a whole pile of false casts and try and dry it off. With the dry fly floating, the fly will actually float quite a bit longer. Poppers, it doesn't matter. You don't have to dress poppers with anything. You cast them out, work them back, just like a, a Zara spook, right? You cast out, you walk the dog. Well, you can do the same thing with poppers. Okay. And then what about uh, the wet flies? And they're, they're the ones that are going deep, like deeper in the water? Yeah. Now, the wet flies, there's three categories of wet flies. Traditional wet flies, nymphs, and streamers. All those will sink. You can get traditional wets, and they're great caddis emerger patterns, and you can catch a pile of different species of fish with those flies. You can go down Lockport, and on a size 10 wet fly, you can catch like 37, 40-inch channel cats, right? But they will sink. The nymphs are actual representations of the living insect that lives underneath the surface of the water. So that's where that comes in. 
and they will look like mayfly nymphs, they will look like dragonfly nymphs and damselfly nymphs and freshwater shrimp and everything else. So you're imitating a natural food item in the natural colors, which is excellent. And trout fishing in the springtime and fall time is really, really good when you use those. But once again, my favorite is streamers. I love fishing streamers, a bait fish imitation, or you can tie it as bright as you want. It doesn't matter, right? If you want to fish a bait fish imitation, black nosed dace is a great pattern. Uh, the DDH leech is another good pattern. It imitates a, a leech. You can do a given sparred in black, which is a big marab marabou concoction, which can take pike. You know, like there's so many different things that you can do with flies, it, it boggles your mind. But streamers, bait fish, or attractor patterns, I love fishing them. Right on. So there's there's they, no doubt, Stu, that, that you've been immersed in fly fishing for quite some time now. And uh, just by listening to you talk about how you used to go up and uh, do the the surveys of, of the hatch and, and how that, that changed your your fishing patterns but uh how did how did you uh first get introduced to the outdoors and, and fishing um and like when did you start fly fishing for the first time was this something that was passed down to you or was this something that you picked up on your own okay this is a good story and this is absolutely true my dad was an outdoorsman right from the get-go so my whole life i've been outdoors he always said the first time i went out fishing i was three months old inside my mother's stomach and I believed them because to me, fishing, like I love bird hunting. I've done deer hunting. I do, well, I don't do deer hunting anymore, but I still do bird hunting, which I really enjoy. But I got the fishing bug when I was really young. And I used, like, my dad would keep me in the boat. We'd be trolling. He says, get ready because one of us is going to catch a fish. How do you know? And sure enough, like 30 seconds. 30 seconds later, either I had a fish on or my dad had a fish on. How did you know? Right. So as I got older, I started asking my dad all these questions. He said, like, how do you know? Well, see where the weed line is? It's coming out and there's some rocks joined right to it. And there's a little drop off there. It goes down an extra five or six feet. He says there's fish that's going to cool. So when I go out fishing, that's what I do. Now, how I got into fly fishing I was 10 years old. So this is really dating myself because I'm going to tell you, that was 1965. <laughs> <laughs> so that was a while ago. Anyway, my aunt lived in Lactabani and she had a place right on the river. So we were visiting. And of course, I asked my dad that morning if I could take my fishing stuff. He said, sure. So after supper, I walked down to the dock and I was casting a little red and white spoon trying to catch something. There's a mayfly hatch on or what at that time I used to call fish flies. And the fish are feeding on. I spent two and a half hours trying to hook an adult mayfly on a small hook and casting it out with a small weight. Ain't never going to happen, man. There's no skeletal parts in a mayfly, so they always come off the hook. But my dad taught me always to be observant, so I knew what the fish are doing. So I go back to the house, said, Dad, the fish are feeding on fish flies. What do I need? Oh, you need a dry fly. What's that? Well, they use it in fly fishing. What's that? What's that? What's that? What's that? What's that? Shut up and read about it, kid. <laughs> and that's what he said. So I did. And I started reading about it. Uh, my dad surprised me with a fly rod a couple of weeks later. 
I went outside, practiced in the back lane, and I started practicing my casting. And I was still reading about it. And I tied my first fly that summer as well. And it just, like, it's taken off from there. It took me probably a year to catch my first fish on the fly. And that was a pike on a streamer I tied out of the Bates book. And it was really cool. So I was so proud of that first fish. is excellent. My next cast after I landed that one and showed my dad, caught a walleye. Hmm. It was really cool. Hey, I can catch both these fish on a fly. That's awesome. Didn't catch anything for the rest of the day. <laughs> but those two fish really got me going because I caught them on my fly that I tied, which was really neat. Right. So, yeah. And that's how I started. And ever since then, it, I, you know, like I know a lot of stuff, but with anything, you never quit learning. You always learn. It doesn't matter. You never quit. So there's still lots of stuff I don't know. Like I talked to some guys, like when Lefty Cray was alive, I was talking to Lefty Cray and the guy's just a genius when it comes to fly fishing. And I, I wish I had his knowledge. It would have been awesome. But yeah, guys like him, Gary Borger, Dan Blatton, all these big names, I've talked to all of them and it's just amazing what they know. Do you think that's just because they're like a different breed of people or are they just immersed in it so much and they're, they're in that envi environment that much that they just see things differently once you enjoy something it's like finding the perfect love of your life right i've been with my wife for 39 years now which is really awesome but i've been fly fishing for 55 and i'll never give it up right and she always said if fly fishing was a woman you would never have married me and she's right <laughs> <laughs> so that's that uh that's quite the saying but uh no it, it's just something that certain people really love mm -hmm. and that's what they prefer and that's their hobby that's their passion and it's like anything if you develop a passion for something then yeah if you de develop a passion for quilting then you're going to be quilting it doesn't matter if you're a man or a woman if you develop a passion for it you're going to keep on doing it mm -hmm. right mine is the outdoors like there's nothing better than going out fishing like i'll even go fishing and give up bird hunting for the day if I have to. Yeah. Yeah. We feel you on that, on those fronts too. We, uh, I mean, there, we might be a little bit different than you on, uh, which we might choose on, on a certain day, but, uh, outdoor related stuff is definitely what we live for too. So, um, we definitely, uh, yeah, can resonate with that. Um, I want to chat with you about some, some, uh, the fly fishing opportunities in Manitoba. And, and I think it's uh, a lot of people, like I said, people that, that don't really know fly fishing as a, uh, as something that you can do in the red river something that you can catch a catfish on something that you can tell your walleye on even, um, you know, I, I, like I said, I think most people who don't fly fish have this, uh, image of fly fishing as this prestigious thing that you do on in Montana with a dry fly and you're fishing a river and, you know, you really got to be a skilled individual to do it. And, um, I can, I can tell you right now that I am not that skilled of a fly caster and I still catch fish doing it. So, um, you've been fishing the province for your entire life with the fly rod almost. Let's start at right here in our backyards, the red river, which is one of the most accessible and one of the best fisheries, um, in Manitoba. And, uh, why don't you chat with us about that and just 
you know, if, if you're a new fly fisherman approaching the Red River, what are we going to expect? And, and like, how do you do that? It's, it's intimidating going down through those locks sometimes. Yeah. Well, you know what? I've been going down there since I was about 20. So that's 45 years. I know where all the ridges are. I know where all the humps are. What I'm going to tell you and people listening to do, and this is one of the things I used to do when I was younger. Before digital cameras came out and cameras and cell phones, before there were cell phones, there was a pen and paper. Stu would go down to Lockport and draw a map after they do the drawdown and draw a map of where all the holes were. Okay, so once again, I'm doing my homework. Springtime, what happens to the holes? They get covered in water. If you know where they are, where are the fish going to be holding? In the holes. Why? There's no current in the holes. The current's going over the hole. Nice place to rest. All I have to do is move the head, suck in some food, move the head back into the hole. It, like, it's not rocket science, mm-hmm. right? It's just that people, and this is really funny. This is this, like, it's amazing to see from when I was a kid and what I used to do to today and how not saying that you're lazy, but some of the younger people are really lazy because they want you to tell them exactly what to do. And you can't because you have to experience what you do before you become good at anything that you do do. Mm-hmm. Right. So I would draw all these maps. I knew where the holes were the following spring. I count the steps from the shoreline. So I'd be standing on the shoreline. I knew I had to cast 30 feet. I would cast 30 feet. I'd be over that hole. I'd catch a fish and everybody would look at me and say, what are you doing? <laughs> right? So it's not hard. If you do the homework, it's not hard. Mm-hmm. Once again, you do the homework, you get an A in math. You do the homework here, you catch lots of fish. Yeah. Right? So I will do that down at Lockport. Now, Lockport is usually the only weightable area of the red that you can get onto because... It's a silt river. At Lockport, they have the stones and the gravel on the bottom, which gives you solid footing. Now, there's a spot at St. Patel Park that I fish, but I don't wait out that far. And hopefully I'm the first one there in the morning, because if I'm not, then I won't be able to fish it. Because there's a little jut of rocks that come out from the shoreline, and you take a step two feet past the left-hand side, and you will be sinking up past your knee with that step into the silt mud bottom and there ain't no way you're going to get out unless you crawl out which is and that's from experience just to let you know (laughs) (laughs) but that's what you have to remember and keep in mind because when you do that you look for the rocky area so where they do the riverbank upgrades you have the limestone the limestone goes into the water can you wade there very safely yes you can but go on the edge where there's mud, you're sinking up to your knee. Mm-hmm. And there's, you know, like there's no mercy for on the red. Now there's spots on the Assiniboine, and I would group the Assiniboine with the red, that is gravel on the bottom, which is beautiful. And you go up by Beaudry Park and all that. There's spots where you can wade in, and you do have to do some experiment and find out where they are. So usually really low water like this, you go out and you mark where all the rocks are. Because when the water goes over those rocks, you know where they are. All of a sudden, like, you got a cell phone, take pictures. 
Mm-hmm. Yeah, there's rocks over there. Go take a picture. Next spring, when you go out there, you know there's rocks there and you know it's safe to wait, right? But there are some spots on the Assiniboine, just like the red, that it's a silt river and you will sink up to your knee in mud. And it doesn't take very long to do that. One step and you're gone, right? So with that said, the fish species on both rivers are virtually identical. So you got channel cat, you got carp, you got freshwater drum, you got walleye, you got pike, you got sauger, you got gold eye, you got crappie, you got bluegill, big mouth buffalo, quillback carp, you know, just a whole myriad of different fish that you can fish. And the great thing about the red is you don't know what you're going to catch until you catch it, which is really cool. Mm-hmm. My best walleye came from the red. It's 28 and three quarter inches. Buddy of mine beat me. His best is 29. I'm trying to beat that, but it's been pretty hard lately. But, you know, you can catch some real big fish. I had Phil Rowley, and he's uh, one of the co-hosts on the new fly fisher. I had him down at the plugway, and we were his first day there, his first fish, 39 and a half inch pike. Yeah, it was massive. And I'm going, holy crap. Like, that's bigger than any pike of that. Yeah, and I got pictures of them with it and all that. So that was cool. So when you look at stuff like that, it's really great. Now, you can go up to the White Mud River. You can go to the Broken Head. You know, springtime, the fish move up the small creeks. You can fish the same river. And in the springtime, when we have a normal spring, all of a sudden you're doing like 38-inch cats out of the same. Yeah. That's unbelievable, right? Any river or creek that flows into the red, springtime, the fish will move up to spawn. I've taken 28-inch walleye out of the LaSalle, 39-and-a-half-inch cat, 30-inch freshwater drum, which was massive. Yeah. My son took a 39-inch pike, right? And this is like 10, not even 10 minutes from my door. Mm -hmm. So the opportunity to fish in and around the city is phenomenal. When when you're when you're going out to target some of these these rivers, uh, obviously the spring river fishing is obviously pretty great, especially in these little these smaller tributaries, um, and uh, and the Red River is obviously, I mean, seems like it's quite successful all year long here in the throughout the summer months. What what kind of uh, setup would you be looking to toss in the water there? Like if somebody goes to Cabela's has a chat with you, what are you going to recommend f- for them to uh, to start out there? At least an eight-weight system, right? And what I usually do is I'll check all the knots for everybody, and I'll tell them you'll need some more backing, so I put some more backing on for them, and then they're set to go. And usually with the eight-weights, may take you a little bit longer, but you can land the fish. Mm-hmm. What I do is I actually show the people how to fight big fish. Now, you're going to say, well, you hold the rod tip up, right? Sorry, no, you don't. And and I will argue with anybody about this. I've built rods. Over my lifetime, I've built over 400 rods. I don't do it anymore because it just took up way too much time. But anyway, what happens is when you hold the rod upright, you're doing the work. The fish is pulling on the rod tip. He's pulling on the line and the rod tip is going down. You have to pull back up on the rod and you have to fight the fish. So if you hook into a big cat and you fight for five or six minutes, 
then your arm is going to get tired because you're giving all the pressure to that rod. Right? Now, what you do is you actually turn the rod sideways. So now you're fighting the fish from the side. You put the butt, fighting butt of the rod into your hip and you just hold it there with your hand. When you want to bring the fish up, you just rotate your body a little bit, get your hips going and crank down. All you're doing is holding the rod. The rod now is doing all the work for you and you can land the big fish in a third of the time. And people always look at me and say, how do you land that fish so fast? Hold your rod to the side. Mm -hmm. And you'll always see me do that. When I'm on red and I've got a big fish on, my rod's always to the side. Yeah. I've had a lot of success like that also. I, I, uh, I was fortunate enough to, to have a fellow kind of give me some advice out there too. And um, uh, when I was fighting a cat, he said, you know, hold your rod to the side and don't hold it like a rainbow. And after some research, I kind of found out why, you know, he said he snaps a lot of rods like that or has snapped rods like that. But what I learned was like the actual back third of that rod, that's the section that's made for fighting the fish. The top two are your, your kind of finesse areas, your, your feelers and your hook set. And that you actually just want to fight on the back third of that rod. Yeah. On the butt section of the rod. Mm -hmm. And that's what you want to do. And like I tell that to everybody, I give them a demonstration on, on how the rod feels. And they're amazed at how far I bend that rod and how far I take that rod down to bend it. The rod will never, ever break when you hold it sideways, mm-hmm. ever. But when you hold it straight up and down, the rod could get point loaded, snap, there it goes. And there goes your fish and there goes your rod. So you have to put fish in. Yeah, not a good scene. That's a bad day for everyone. Um it's it's funny because I've I've heard the the saying too, you know, when I when I tell people who are, aren't familiar with fly fishing, you know, that I caught a catfish on a fly rod at Lockport, and they always say, I always thought catfish were bottom feeders. How did you catch a catfish on a fly rod? And uh, then I kind of go into it. But how how what would you say to somebody that that uh, says something like that to you? How do you catch a fish on a fly rod, or how do you catch channel cat on a fly rod? Mm-hmm. Another little story. I was doing some seminars down in Montana, and this was the first year that I did a seminar on fly fishing cats and carp. I had two guys in my seminar that came up to me after and said, you're a liar. I said, excuse me? You can't catch channel cats on a fly rod. I said, let me ask you a question. Why would I travel for 21 hours in my own vehicle at my own expense to come down here and do a seminar and tell a lie. Why would I do that, right? And it's just like, man. So when people ask me, can you really catch cats on a fly rod? I say, yes, you can, just like any other fish. They're fish, they live in the water, they eat food that's in the water. It's just like everybody in the world. We're all humans, we all eat the same food. Doesn't matter what nationality we are, we eat food. Same with fish, whether it's channel cats, rainbows, doesn't matter. Fish are fish. They need to eat. What are they going to eat? Food underneath the water. Mm-hmm. What's in the water, right? Yeah. Insects. Yeah. Absolutely. Fish. And I think, I think, like, like I said, I've we've kind of alluded to before too about this. People have this grand idea of dry fly fishing that, and uh, the tackle that I've been using down there, anyways, is a sinking line and uh, a, a wet fly. So that actually targets fish that are close to the bottom 
with the fly rod, which is which yeah. is uh, a surprise for most people, I think. Yeah. Well, you know what? Here's the thing. Catfish are really cool. Number one, they're one great big taste bud. So if something hits the tail, they can taste it. If something hits their peck fin, they can taste it. If something hits their dorsal fin, they can taste it. They, they taste good, they turn around and eat it. Now you're going to say, I don't know what I'm talking about. But proven fact, taste buds on a channel cat. Yes, most of them are around the whiskers, but they're all along the body on every part of the body. So the cats can actually taste whatever hits them. Now, with that being said, you have to remember, cats are opportunistic. So if I had a real nice big beef roast right beside me and you're hungry, are you going to eat it? Well, of course you are. That's the same with cat. If there's some dead bait on the bottom, he doesn't have to move for it and he doesn't have to swim for it. Is he going to eat it? Yes, he is. So that's where the bottom feeding comes in. But they aren't bottom feeders. They feed right throughout the whole water column, which is really cool because you catch them close to the bottom and you can catch them on the surface. When you catch them on the surface, if the hat, if there's a hatch and it's big enough, they will actually eat dry flies. And I've taken them on dries right off the surface of the water, which is really cool, right? Most of the time, the cats are slashing on the surface after the shiners. And when I see that, I use a dry line, a streamer, and I'm drifting that streamer, and I'm only down like maybe six inches. And I'm whacking cats to beat the band. Why? Because that's where they're feeding. Why are you fishing on the bottom when you can see the cats coming up to the surface and slashing on the surface? Mm -hmm. It's... It, it's like, oh, I'm really hungry, but I don't want anything to eat mm -hmm. type of thing, right? That's mentality that people have sometimes. And it's really unfortunate they have it like that because they're missing an opportunity. Definitely. Um, so as we uh, get a little bit uh, further away from Lockport here, obviously Manitoba has tons of great fisheries province-wide. Um, Lockport's just one of the, probably the most accessible one for, for uh, the majority of the province. Uh, which is Winnipeg, um, but uh, and and the surrounding rivers. But uh, as we get further away, you know, there's some great trout fishing opportunities. Um, just there's some phenomenal lakes on the on the west side of Manitoba there that produce some just monstrous trout. Um, what are what are some different tactics that you employ out there, and, and how would you go approach in a lake a lake out that way for trout? Hey, if, if I'm fishing out on the west side of the province, it depends on what lake I want to fish. And I'll approach each lake a little bit differently. So let's say you do an east goose in the town of Rob. One of the first things I will do is when I get out there is note the time of year. If the ice is just 10 to 15 back feet back from the shoreline, I'm fishing that open water with a small streamer. Very easy streamer, gold tinsel body. Mallard breast feather wing. It's called a, a mallard SB, and I'll fish that in the open water. The reason being is that the minerals are going to be in shallow and the trout are going to be following their food source. So that will work until there's the ice is back 40, 50 feet from the shoreline. That's when I switch to a back swimmer or a water boatman invitation because those are the first insects that really become active. And there's not one or two or three or four or a thousand or two thousand there's hundreds of thousands of these insects swimming around that lake and all the trout are gorging themselves on it 
because trout will usually eat insects 80% of the time, right? So they're feeding on all these insects. As the water warms up and you get into May, now you start fishing dragonfly nymphs, damselfly nymphs, leeches, crayfish imitations, because now all these insects and animals are moving around now, right? So during the course of the day, early spring, 10 o'clock in the morning till three in the afternoon, hottest part of the day, because it warms the water up. As the ice recedes, you can fish all day long until you hit about mid-May. And then you're going early morning, so from about four o'clock in the morning until eight or nine, go for a siesta, go have a good sleep, get back on the water for about eight o'clock at night, and you're fishing till 11 at night, right? This time of year, like I would be fishing 11 at night till about two or three in the morning. Because hmm. that's when the cooler weather is and that's when the water's gonna cool down a bit and that's when the fish are gonna be active. Mm -hmm. And then as fall comes along, it switches back to like the springtime fishing all day. And then it goes back to the middle of the afternoon in late October. Because mm -hmm. that's when all the heat is. And that's when the water warms up and the fish become active when the water warms up. Yeah. So if, if you do something like that and remember that, your fishing su success will increase like you wouldn't believe. It's just like understanding the aquatic insects. If you understand where the fish move and how they move and why they move. It's like a whole education right there. And you just follow the fish and it's no problem catching them. Yeah. Well, so a lot of it's coming down to like, not so much the the casting aesthetics of it, which which a lot of people, I, th I feel like that's, that's the main pressure about fly fishing. Can you cast a fly line? And uh, like I kind of said before, I'm certainly not the best caster out there, but what it comes down to is doing your research on the best times to fish the best exactly. gear to have and how to present that gear to our that fly to to a cat and how to work it properly or, or to a fish i mean not not just a cat but any fish how to present yeah. it properly yeah um what's your favorite trout to target out there taggers yeah oh yeah they're a riot they're just like smallmouth bass no kidding they'll hit They'll hit dry, they'll hit wet, they'll hit nymphs, they'll hit streamers, and they will annihilate poppers. And it's just so much fun. A popper with trout, like you would never believe it, but these taggers are so aggressive. Buddy of mine, Mike Corgan, who I consider is probably, out of all the five I know, I would put him in the top five in North America. This guy is phenomenal. And he lives here in Winnipeg. The guy is just a phenom when it comes to fishing and catching big fish. So he ties up this mouse pattern and that's going to show up in my book, but he ties up this mouse pattern and he uses it on twin and he annihilates big, like I'm talking 26, 27, 28 inch taggers on this thing. And it drives me crazy. Right. So he gave one to my son one day and my son is catching all these trout. And I'm sitting there with my DDH leech and I'm going, Oh, come on. Oh, come on. <laughs> But yeah, I got my clock cleaned that day. But yeah, it was really cool. But yeah, poppers and trout. In fact, I'll use a deer hair mouse for browns at night. And I'll also use some of my uh, bass divers, or I call them bass divers. But it's another deer hair popper that's quite big. But I'll use that as well at night for big browns. And I'll do browns 24, 25, 26 inches all the time. Nice. Right? So it just depends. 
So the west side of the province for trout is the best side of the province for trout. Like you have so many lakes, Corsifine, Lake 400, Pibus, you know, like you have the Duck Mountains, like East and West Goose, Twin, just like, holy smokes, Patterson to Carrick, all of them, right? So you have a lot of lakes that you can fish. When you go up north, of course, Barbie is, is really good. I hear they're going to be restocking chocolate with some fish. So there's going to be some big fish up in chocolate again. The east side of the province, though, there's a couple trout lakes on the east side. There's Hunt, Lyons, McHugh, and Camp right on the Ontario border. And they aren't too bad. But when I go to the east side, I don't concentrate on trout. I do pike, walleye, and bass on the east side of the province. So I have spots that I go to. And believe it or not, one spot is in the white shell. And I'll go out there early spring or very late in the fall. And I, I'll be the only person there. And I'm doing pike 35 to 45 inches all day long. And it's just a riot. And that's in the white shell. No kidding. And I go, I have a special little bass lake that I go to up in Nopaming. And my best bass out of there is 22 and a half inches so far. Wow. And I know there's 25 inches in there because I've had them on. And they're just massive fish. But it's a hard lake to fish. My best day so far has been 16 hits. And I've landed eight fish. And that's when I caught my 22 incher. My smallest one was 18. I was fishing from, I got on the water at 5.30 and I fished until 8.30. So in that amount of time, I only had 16 hits from bass. That's a long day just to have 16 hits. You're talking but, 8, 8.30 at night. Yeah. So 5.30 in the morning till 8.30 at night, one heck of a long day, right? 15, so that's one hit per hour just about Jeez. Right? was it worth it for that size of fish yes if you're not prepared to do that and catch that size of fish then don't bother going to this lake but there's lakes on the east side that the bass are just phenomenal the pike is phenomenal uh the walleye like i love fishing the winnipeg river for walleye i've seen some big walleye i've had some big walleye on out there and it's just phenomenal i've taken walleye on dry flies as well so, yeah, and they're a good size. That, that's amazing. Um, so there's definitely no shortage of fly fishing opportunities in Manitoba. It's just, uh, I guess, do you have the gear and do you have, you know, the know-how where to target them? Um, let's talk about gear for a second here. You know, I, I, I'm assuming you get this question quite a bit being, uh, you know, you said you, you mentioned that you work part-time at Cabela's. Um, what... What's a good setup when you talk to people to to get into? And you know, there's there's a there's a whole range of price points for gear that you can get into too. And I, I've I've seen some of your content on the internet where you talk about this. Um, tell us a little bit about some of the benefits of like going to high end gear, or is it worth it to invest in some lower end gear to start out with? Well, to start with, I always tell people you don't have to spend a fortune to get a half decent outfit. All you want to be able to do is cast and land a fish. So you look at the combos that, that I have at the store, the Prestige, the Cinch. Like overall, a Cinch is probably the best combo that I have. And it's only, like I believe, $219. You can use the Bighorn combo. That's $130, right? 
And with these combos, you get the rod, reel, line, leader, and backing. So you're all set to go. All you have to do is go out and practice casting and buy a dozen flies, right? When you get up into the better quality, that's where you really have to stop and think. Because do you really need a $500 fly rod? Okay. And the reason I say that is I found out that Sage sold all their old fly rod blanks. And that's when they first made the graphite fly rods. So it was the RPL series. Guess who bought them? Cabela's. Oh, Cabela's. <laughs> so what you're paying $130 for back in the mid-80s was probably a $200 rod. I know, it's amazing. No kidding, hey? Right? But, but that's what happens sometimes, right? Yeah. So the Cabela's product is is actually, I consider not too bad a quality with like I had an RPL and I loved it. And, you know, for them to, to uh, make the rods out of, out of the old sage blanks, like that's excellent. Mm -hmm. right? And that's what the cinch is. That's probably one of the nicest casting rods you'll ever pick up. And it feels like a six, $700 rod. The difference in the rods is quality of cork in the handle and the quality of graphite in the rod and how they build it. Some of the less expensive rods have grade C cork, which means there's a lot of filler in the cork handle. Does that dampen the sensitivity of the rod? No. It doesn't make the cork last as long as if you had a AAA grade cork on the handle, which is virtually no filler at all. It's just straight cork. The other thing is when you get a higher quality graphite in the rod, your recovery rate on your cast is a lot faster. So if you watch a flex in your rod, and when you make your forward cast and you see how fast the recovery rate is, then all of a sudden you go, holy smokes. And that makes a huge difference too when you're casting. But, you know, most people, if you really get into it, then I would say upgrade. You can start off with a $130 combo. There's nothing wrong with that. You can do a $220 combo. You can do a $280 combo. Right? There's nothing wrong with it, but it depends on the species of fish you're going after. If you want to try cats and carp and everything else, at least an eight weight. Uh, we do have a couple of nine or 10 weight systems in the store, but once again, you're paying closer to 300 because it's better quality equipment. Mm -hmm. But to get, to get somebody going, like I watch my money all the time, right? Everybody does. You have to, right? So am I going to try and talk you into a $700 fly rod as your first fly rod? No, right? You spend all this money, all of a sudden you're spending like $5,000 on this stuff, and then you get frustrated because you can't cast, and nobody's there to show you. And you say, that jerk at Cabela's doesn't know what he's talking about. I hate this stuff, right? And then you give up. I don't want you to give up. I want you to have fun, go out and catch fish. So that's why when I see people down on a river and, and they're struggling, like I'll quit fish and go over and help. Mm -hmm. And then all of a sudden they're catching fish and they're going, oh man, this is too easy. You wouldn't believe. Like when you see us down there on Tuesday nights, the Manitoba fly fishers, last night uh, there were six guys down there. I taught four of them how to fly fish. Right? And that's the way, and you look at some of the members in the club, I bet you I taught 80 to 90% of the members of the club how to fly fish. Mm -hmm. Right? So if I see you down there and you're having problems, I'll just go up and introduce myself and say, okay, this is what you have to do. Do you want to catch your fish? 
okay, listen to me. I'll show you how to catch fish. Yeah, I think I think that's uh, it. Seems to be a common theme with my experience so far among fly fishermen. Anyways, the ones that I have bumped into have either uh, heard my cry for help or seen me struggling down there and, <laughs> and came over and uh, and uh, offered advice at uh, you know just more than happy to help me out, which has been yeah. awesome. It, it's it's it was uh, I I've, I fly fish before my first. Uh, experience with the red river fly fishing um i used to do some uh some brook trout and some grayling up north but uh it's it's a little bit different than that raging river right by the locks and it's uh a little more intimidating there's more rocks there and uh after standing there for about an hour and a half and not hooking a single fish and watching the guy next to me almost hook one every second cast <laughs> really kind of <laughs> you know weighs pretty hard on a guy's heart (laughs) yeah well for sure for sure so uh yeah i was certainly questioning everything i knew about fishing and then uh after i kind of broke down and and asked him after he's taking a photo with uh with a master angler cat i was like man what what are you doing what are you doing out here that i'm not doing and what are you throwing and uh he he gladly tossed me a couple flies and, and gave me some pointers and i was off the races kind of thing so um that that's awesome i feel like that that fly fishing community is is very accepting and helpful to uh, to anybody that's eager to learn or uh, wants to learn too oh yeah for sure our club is just fantastic manitoba fly fishers and you know sheldon if you want to get into fly fishing like man i'll tell you it's not that hard to do and what i tell people i always ask them when they pick up a rod I ask, can you hammer a nail and I'm asking that to you, Sheldon. Can you yeah, hammer a yeah, nail? Yeah, I, I can. I can hammer a nail, yep. Okay. So what you do is you take that nail and put it one foot in front of you at eye level, and you're going to hammer that nail into the pencil post. Okay. So just picture that in your mind. You bring the hammer back, hit the nail on the head. That's a whole act of fly casting. How easy is that? You're fly casting, and you don't even know it. Right. Because you're hammering a nail. It's the identical movement. What you gotta do is walk out 30 feet of line, practice your timing, right? Because when you pick up that line, the line has to straighten out behind you before you start your forward cast, and it has to straighten out in front of you before you start your back cast, right? That's all you have to work on. You practice with 30 feet, and I will guarantee you that you will catch 95% of your fish within a 30-foot diameter of where you're sitting. I will guarantee that. So that's all you have to cast is 30 feet. I'll have you fishing in no time now. That's pretty, that's pretty remarkable. I'm, I'm very interested in actually uh, trying it out and especially sitting back and listening to you and Chase talk the talk. And uh, yeah, I'm picking up a lot of information. I've been writing a lot of stuff down to be honest. So <laughs> it's been super, super good. And now I know just all you gotta do is hammer the nail. Yeah. So here's the thing. Come out next Tuesday, right? That's my date. Okay. Meet me down at Lockport on the east side of the river. Do you have waders? Yep, I do. Okay, bring your waders down. Don't even worry about uh, bringing down a fly rod and that. I'll bring bring an extra one for you. I'll, I'll show you how to cast. And we'll put chase the chain because we'll catch all the fish and you won't catch anything. <laughs> hey, man, I like that. If I can be chase any way I can, I'll take every tip and trick and 
anything by the book to beat Chase. You know what? I, I will. Uh, I would. I would take that bet and bet against myself because normally when Sheldon and I go out fishing, that's usually how it goes. <laughs> <laughs> it doesn't matter if I'm fishing in the hole next to him. Ice fishing, he's usually catching all the fish anyway. So. Oh yeah. Um, Natural. Yeah. But uh, but that's awesome. So um, big shout out to the Manitoba Fly Fishing uh, Association. There, there. I've I've spoken to a few people from there, and they're uh, they've been really resourceful for uh, for me, and always inviting. Oh, me they're to, all great guys, and yeah. it just so happens Mike Corrigan is the president of the club, and like I said, that guy is a phenomenal fly fisherman. Nice, awesome. Um, let's talk a little bit more about uh, about your role in the fly fishing world here. Um, you know, we, we've chatted a lot about your knowledge around fly fishing in the province, but, but you actually play a little larger role in the fly fishing, uh, industry here than, than, uh, than people might know. Um, you have, uh, a website, uh, dark water dubbing that people can check out if they want to. And, uh, there they have access to, um, you do some guiding. Is that correct? Uh, I used to. I've cut back a lot on that the last little bit because I'm doing more writing than than guiding. Okay, there you go. And then, right. but but also you can you have there's all your uh, the resources that um, um, that you've been a part of online. So there's lots of your writing and videos and and all that kind of stuff yeah, that are exactly. accessible there. Uh, on on my website, I do have different articles for different species of fish. Uh, Take a look at some of the pictures. I think they would shock you at the size of fish that, and all those fish are fly caught. And, you know, you look at the size of some of them and you're going to go, holy crap, that's huge. Mm -hmm. You know, so, you know, I've been lucky throughout my life. I've done seminars from Seattle, Washington, all the way out to Chicago in the Northern States and in Canada from Trail BC out to Thunder Bay. So, you know, like I've done tons of seminars been lucky to be on tv with Flyfish tv and one last cast uh, i've done a couple other shows with companies down in the states i've been on radio shows even had a chance to meet uh brian dennehy of uh movie i guess hollywood star fame uh they asked me to be a casting instructor in the movie a season on the brink uh bobby knight story and like it was really amazing the director said, can you get him to cast? And I said, sure. You should have seen what they had on this skinny body. <laughs> like they put about 50 pounds of padding on me. I'm just sweating to beat the band. Like it was so hot. Anyway, I had Brian and he was casting like 30, 40 feet in, in about five or six minutes. It was hmm. like the guy was phenomenal. I'm saying you should be a fly fisherman. And he picked it up so fast and so quick. It was unbelievable. And the only casting that I did in the movie was for the showed one shot for about one or two seconds of him standing way in the corner and casting up into the stands. Allows me. <laughs> so I got to be in a movie for two seconds. Right. But he did all his own casting and he picked it up so fast. It was amazing. So I not only have I done that type of stuff I've, I've written articles for different magazines American Angler I wrote my first one for Outdoor Edge magazine a few years ago and just so happened Ken Bailey who writes for Outdoor Canada now was the editor and he put my first article in a magazine for me so that was really cool 
So I've written for about seven or eight different magazines. And, uh, you know, there's something else I'm working on right now. It's just about finished, which is a fly pattern book. And I've been wanting to do this book since I was about 20 or 21. But if I would have done it back then, I wouldn't have had the flies that I have in the book now. But it is a fly pattern book. I do have some patterns by other people. There's 106 flies in the book. I put five bonus flies in there. But what it is, all these flies catch different species of fish. So anything and everything, anywhere in the world, you can take these flies and go and catch fish. If you want to do a, a trout over in England, you can tie my midge patterns and they work, right? And if you want to catch, want to use one fly, no matter where you fish in the world, it's my DDH leech. I've sent that fly to 15 different countries and it's taken 96 different species of fish. And the coolest, believe it or not, there's this kid that uh, got some of my leeches from me. He went to Australia and he's fishing the beach and he's landing stingray on my fly. And I've got the pictures on my computer. And I'm looking at them. I wish they were in focus better. But you could see him standing over the stingray, lifting it up. And it's just like, holy crap. And you can see the fly in its mouth and all that. That was really cool. That has to be uh, like when when I when I'm thinking about all the stuff that I'm I was kind of researching on you and and going through your website and the the DDH leech pattern is one of the more common things that you that I've come across when researching fly fishing in Manitoba in general um, when I've reached out on websites or what or uh, you know Facebook pages everyone always says oh I'll get some DDH leeches and toss them out there kind of thing and and I looked into this, and this is actually something that you, you a pattern that you've created. And, and um, I don't know a whole lot about time flies, but it seems like at times there can be a lot of steps involved and a lot of thought goes into the process of how do I make this piece of fur or this hair or this string or these weights, how do I make this look like something that the fish is going to eat? How do I make this look like a, a leech or a minnow or or a fly or whatever it may be. Um, yeah. I, I think that's, that's, that's something very cool that, 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 you know, you have in your pocket now that you can say, Hey, I made this and it's caught. I read on your website over 89 different species of fish across the world. Yeah. And it's, it's, yeah, I have inc- to update that. It's 96 right now. <laughs> there you go. 96. That's incredible. How, how do you go about that process of creating a new fly? Like, like, uh, I, I don't know how, how did I even look at like a, a bug and be like, all right, this is what we're going to do. Obviously you've, you've had tons of time throughout your life to study this and, and be a, a student of the fly fishing world and, uh, the match the hash world and, and fly tying. Um, what are some of those key features that you've learned over that time that, that you could pass on to us and, and that, that how, how, how's that process go for you? Let's see. Well, once again, it's thought process. After a while, when you first start, you want to tie anything and everything. I was there's one pattern in my book called an elastic band caddis. I've been tying that since I was 15. This is how I came up with a fly. I'm sitting at the bench downstairs at my parents' house. I have an elastic band around my hands. I'm sitting at the bench. I'm doing this. What can I tie? I want to tie something. I don't know what to tie. I look at the rubber band, I go, 
Oh, that turned white. It's tan. Whoop, white. It's tan. I'll tie a fly with this. So I started fooling around with it. And I came up with an elastic band caddis. And when I first tied it at a seminar, this guy took it and he went out and he was catching crappie and bluegill and everything else on it. And it was just amazing. And he wrote an article about it in a magazine, which was really cool. Right? So I'll sit down with the material and say, what do I want to tie? If you saw my room, you'd go crazy. But I will usually start with one material. What can I tie with this material? What type of fly? Now, my thought process is different from everybody else because I'm a production tire. I will not tie one fly of one kind. I will do a dozen. When I do my DDH leeches, I do five or six dozen at a time. I don't do one dozen. I do five or six. It just saves time on time. So, okay, let's take the DDH, for example. I wanted to make a leech pattern. So I sat down and I said to myself, I need a little bit of weight in order to do this properly, right? So I used some bead chain eyes. Great, because I didn't want it to sink real fast. I didn't want it to sink real slow. I just wanted a nice sink rate on it. Then I grabbed my favorite tying material, which is marabou, and I put a marabou tail on it. And it sat in my vise like that for about an hour, because I was sitting there thinking, what can I use for a body? And I was sitting there thinking and thinking and thinking. Got up, got a cup of coffee, went back, thought some more, wasted about an hour. And I looked at my dubbing wall and I thought, yeah, I'll try some dubbing. So the first one that I tied up, the dubbing was way too short. And I didn't like it. So I thought, I need a longer hair. So I'm looking all through all my stuff. I found these rabbit zonker strips and I cut the hair off. And that was just about perfect. But I wanted a better flash and fly as well. So with the remaining hair, I mixed in some diamond dub holographic and I used that. And it was just like, that's it. So the name DDH Leech comes from diamond dub holographic. It's a holographic flash that I add into my dub. So I tie a dozen of these flies up. And usually what I do when I have a new pattern, I get people to try them out. So I gave this fly to six different guys. They got two each. One guy come back and said, Stu, I want two dozen of those flies. I said, why? I got 67 trout over 20 inches over the weekend. I said, you got what? Go 67 trout over 20 inches. The best was 29 and three quarters. I'm looking at him. I'm going, holy crap. You know, like, do you have pictures? He showed me a picture. Like, it was amazing of the biggest fish. And I'm going, holy smokes. So not 20 minutes later, another two guys come in that got flies. They go, these flies are crap. I said, what do you mean? And they threw them on the counter, and there was two, two fibers of marabou left on the tail and about 10 wraps of thread. We got so many bass. We caught over just about 400 bass in two days of fishing on these flies. And I'm looking at them. You guys are yanking my chain, man. And they go, no way. We only fished these two flies, and that's all we fished. And this is the way they come back. So the other four guys came back with the same sort of stories. I'm thinking, like, how can this fly be working this good? So I went out. I tied up half a dozen for myself, and I went out to the Bird River. I got 47 pike, I think it was, and 60-some walleye in a day of fishing on that fly. Jeez. And the best pike was 42 inches, and the best walleye was sitting at 26. And, it was, and I was speechless. 
So I come back home, I tie up another three dozen of the flies. I sent them to some friends out in BC. They went out and they did steelhead, coho, chump, all the salmon. They were doing cutthroat. They were doing everything. On the east side, they were doing brook trout and Atlantic salmon and smallmouth on them. A uh, buddy of mine took him to Australia and he was catching bear Monday on them. Like, man, it, and this fly just took off. And when I developed it, I didn't think of this. But when you look at the way it's tied and the movement of the fly, everything moves on that fly. And when you strip it in, it's just really unbelievable what happens to it. Use a loop knot, that thing is moving all over the place. I was fishing the national championships and I had one competitor in a boat with me and he was going, I got to get that fly. I just got, because I showed him the action of it and he was just going crazy. And he says, I have to buy some from you. Give me that fly. So anyway, he, he bought a, about half a dozen off me and he goes out the next day and he uses the black one and man, he's whacking trout like crazy. He won the venue. It really ticked me off, but <laughs> you know, it was, it was really, yeah, it was good. So when you sit down to design flies, any fly you tie is going to work. Do you have faith in your flies? That's the question. If you have a, any faith at all in your flies and your ability, it's amazing what you can catch. Hmm. Interesting. <clears throat> well, um, Stu, I, I am gone through my entire two pages of information here, and you've, you've honestly answered half of it just on your own, chatting through the our conversations <laughs> here. But uh, uh, before we leave you here, I want to hear uh, what's your most memorable fish on a fly rod? It wasn't caught by myself. It was caught by my son. He was using an olive DDH leech, and he lands this fish. He goes, hey, Dad, come over here. Because I watched him land it, like he was fighting it and landing it. And I thought, that's not a trout. What did he get? So he called me over a 10-inch horny head chub. <laughs> Phenomenal. Like, that was just absolutely phenomenal. The only other fish that would com compare to that, I took a 12-and-a-half-inch rock bass out of out of the LaSalle River. That was really cool because, you know how I told you, you catch 95% of your fish within a 30-foot diameter? I didn't even have my whole leader past my fly rod tip. <laughs> I stuck it behind the boulder and the fish hit. It was awesome, <laughs> right? So I didn't even cast and 12 and a half inches is great Jeez. but yeah so those were the two most memorable and it, and it was really great what one thing i would i would like to add i'll even show you a picture of it there you go man tied and true that okay yeah absolutely copy of my book this is a final proof copy so it's getting closer but uh i'm finally getting it out i've had some people at cabela's look at it and they really really liked it and even my wife goes, I'm really impressed with the photos that you took. <laughs> <laughs> oh, thanks, dear. You know, so it it's just about right at the end, just about ready for publication. So it's going to be coming out soon. Uh, Scott Gardner said he's going to be doing a blurb in the Outdoor Canada magazine. Uh, Jim McClellan is going to be doing a blurb in Fly Fusion magazine. Uh, hopefully Phil Monahan down in Orbis is going to be doing a blurb on the fly fishing blog. So that would be really nice. But yeah, I have some people doing some reviews right now. And that's the only thing that's holding me back. It's just waiting for those to come in. And then uh, 
there's only one mistake that I have to get corrected in the book and then it's done and it'll be out uh, for print very shortly. Oh man, I'm sure that's exciting news for you. Certainly after a, a lifetime dedicated to, uh, to fly fishing that um, sounds like you've earned it, man. And uh... Oh, it's been, you know what? It's fun. It's fun. If you ever come out fishing with me, I probably won't fish for about two hours and then I'll make a few casts and I'll stand there and talk to you again for another couple yeah. hours. <laughs> it's funny. I got a, I got a quick story to tell you. It kind of links back to that rock bass story to you, for you too. It, and after my first couple times figuring out Lockport, um, I said to my brother, I was like, man, you got to come down here with me and, and like, you got to experience this. We got to, I got to get you into some of these cats and like, this is unbelievable. I cannot believe that it took us that long to, to get down there. We've, we've lived five minutes from the, from the locks for, I mean, the greater portion of our lives. And this is our, the first time that we fly fish. We've done other fishing down there, but not fly fishing. And, uh, and so he was having a blast down there, tossing a fly around and, and he went through lots of the same process that I did where he's in the rocks, losing flies. And, uh, and I was just retying flies for him and getting him back out there as fast as I could kind of thing. So he could catch a fish. And so he starts catching and then in between he's, he pulls his rod out of the water and he's sending a text message and just the fly is dangling, floating around him and he's catching freaking walleye left, right and center, just right around him. <laughs> he's, he's laughing. He says, look at this, look at this. Another oh. one he says. So yeah, that's awesome. Yeah. It was pretty funny. Um, before we let you go, Sheldon, you got any last words there, fella? Well, Stu, I, I do have quite a few last words, but you, like, I think Chase kind of said it, you kind of answered a lot of them with your stories there. And, uh, I really appreciate you coming on it. Like I said, I've never even thrown a, um, or I've never even casted a, a fly fishing rod. And, you know, I was kind of almost looking at my calendar to see if I'm free next Tuesday night so I can come out to your, uh, to come <laughs> out and fish with you. But I mean, uh, thank you very much for coming on the podcast. And, and like I said, anybody that's listening to this is, uh, probably in the same boat as me that that's not a fly fisherman is just it's it's such good knowledge and and not only that if i never get out fly fishing at least i know what what you guys are talking about a little bit more now than i did before <laughs> well i'll drag you out if i have to man <laughs> <laughs> okay deal and uh i want to say big thanks to you Stu, for coming on and i think i think uh, throughout this episode you know you make things much more accessible for people who are maybe thinking about or on the fence about getting out there, getting their toes wet in the fly fishing world. And uh, hopefully we left them with some good resources here for uh, to uh, to kind of, if they have any more questions to ask or for um, looking for someone to reach out to. So um, before we let you go, Stu, do you have any last words? And what would you uh, maybe give us a few words of encouragement for those people that might be on that fence walking that line? You know, all I can say is fly fishing is not hard. It's easy. Don't ever think it's hard. And it, don't ever think that you have to go down to Montana and do fly fishing because you don't, right? When you fish streams of Montana, you got thousands upon thousands of, of fly anglers down there fishing the same water day after day after day after day. That's difficult fishing. I can tell you Manitoba fish are stupid. I really like that because they will hit a fly with reckless abandon and they don't care so anybody with any amount of ability whether you're the first time outer or you've been fly fishing for 15 years 
just popped down to the red like man it yeah good fishing i'll tell you that some of the best in in north america amazing and uh like we kind of alluded to earlier the Manitoba fly fishing association there is a great resource for people um if people listening or wanting to chat with people the fly fishing association has a facebook page i believe and an instagram page yes. and yeah uh, and they do have a website as well and I think they could uh, probably look you up on Facebook at some somewhere too, and and uh, have a chat with you too. Is that correct? Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. So I'm on Facebook. I basically just post about fishing as opposed to anything else. But yeah, if you type in my name, it'll come up. And uh, if you have ever have any questions, don't hesitate to get a hold of me or ask me the questions. It may take me a day or two to get back to you, but I will get back to you and answer you to the best of my ability. And I've always done that with people. In fact, customers from Cabela's email me all the time because I gave them my email and I answer questions all the time. That's uh, that's actually how I reached out to you. You know, we, um, I was cruising your website, that uh, dark water, water dubbing, and um, just hit the contact us button and shot you an email. And same day, you were yeah. writing one back. So, uh, yeah, however people may find you, I hope they do. And I hope... Uh, this episode gets a few more people on the water with the fly line yeah that would be awesome and thanks for having me tonight and sheldon i'm telling you i'm gonna get you out man yeah (laughs) i'm looking forward to it we will we will okay thanks again Stu. thanks a lot thanks you thanks for listening folks episode 90 we hope you took something away from that i know we sure did um before we let you slide away though uh please Go over to whatever platform you're listening to this on. Give us a rating. Give us a review. Share this with a buddy that you think might enjoy it. That will help us grow and help this podcast keep on rolling for many time to come. Sheldon, coming in from Brandon, what can you tell me, buddy? Well, first of all, I want to say big congratulations to Tampa Bay Lightning for winning the Stanley Cup. They beat the Montreal Canadiens last night uh, or a couple nights ago by the time you guys listened to this, but... It was, uh, I'm super happy that that North Division did good. Like, it got into the finals. Everyone, nobody thought a North Division team was going to get into the finals. It would be nice to see the Jets or maybe Edmonton be better. Um, But, yeah. That being said, we've got some uh, cool stuff in the store as well. Uh, Worst transition in history, I think, from hockey to our store. But we've got some new hats in with new patches. It's our new look, new patch with um, a flex fit snapback hat. It's probably the most comfortable hat that I've ever worn. I know Chase rocks them all the time. It's just like one of those hats where if you kind of have like a weird shaped head and you can't really find like, let's say like the fourth snap to the fifth snap, there's nothing that really fits perfectly. This snap back flex fit will be the perfect hat, perfect fit. We've got those coming in. We also got... Our T-shirts, four different styles, two retro, two like original logos. They're very inexpensive. We've got a sale on them right now as well. So you can buy three of them for 50 bucks basically. I think you buy two and get this and get the third one 50% off. Works out to around $50. And you can have three shirts for summertime, for whenever. And they're lightweight. They're comfortable. They're actually super awesome. I really like them especially the price point on them. So go to our store, www.panoramicoutdoors.com. 
you can check out all of our apparel we've got like i said hats shirts sweaters um we've got decals for your boat and your truck your car uh your kids quad whatever you want to put it on we got patches for your backpacks we've got a blog where we've got a couple uh, articles in there about willie who is tristan's uh, hunting dog or tristan's family dog and uh one article about an elk hunt as well so check all that stuff out we appreciate when you guys check out our website and thank you to everyone that does that right on folks well thanks again for tuning into this episode of the panoramic outdoors podcast and uh we'll catch you on the next one remember keep that leatherman on your hip keep your hook sharp and sheldon don't forget to mend it <laughs>